Dating in the 21st century can be a tricky path to manoeuvre, but in reality, the difficulties pale in comparison when compared to the complex etiquette and social pressures that one was doomed to follow in the Victorian period. One couple found this out in a unique way when their romantic love affair took a hard swipe left and turned into a tale of arsenic, scandal and mystery that could probably have been avoided had ghosting been a thing. This is Dark Histories, where the facts are worse than fiction. Hello and welcome to Dark Histories. I'm Ben, as always. This is Season 6, Episode 16, I do believe. Uh, just a, a, a small um, little thank you this week before we start. Uh, I just want to say thank you to Craig, who uh, sent me a book um, from the Amazon wishlist, which I used quite a bit for this episode. But also thank you for for the very touching message um, that came along with the book, Uh I'm just glad that, um, you know, dark histories can be, um, you know, uh, uh, something of an escape for people because uh, it, it, it's an escape for me too. So, um, you know, I'm glad it kind of, you know, it works out for everyone. So, yeah, thanks very much for that. Uh, otherwise, coming up to October now, so we're getting near kind of spooky season. And I, I guess I should probably start suggesting, if you fancy it, perhaps start sending in your stories for the Christmas campfire, which sounds like a long way away, right? But I might as well kind of put the shout out for it now because it's only a couple of months before I'll start thinking about putting it together. So yeah, I guess entries are open if you want to get your entry in for the um, uh, Christmas campfire episode. So that, um, yeah, if you can just go ahead and email uh, contact at darkhistories.com. But yeah, I guess... Uh, from now on, the entries are open uh, until, uh, you know, I guess sometime in sort of December, well, I'll close the entries off. Um, but obviously that you've got plenty of time yet. But yeah, if you fancy it, um, I will start putting Christmas campfire uh, stories to one side for the episode. So yeah, with that said, let's crack on. Today's episode is called Madeline Smith and the Dangerous Game of Dating in the 19th Century. Throughout the 17th and 18th centuries, patriarchal marriages, designed as a social and economic exchange and organised by a couple's parents, were becoming less and less common, and instead, marrying for companionship was increasingly taken over as the ideal. Despite society's rigid grasp on strict gender roles, this concept nevertheless managed to progress further than ever throughout the 19th century, when the sentimentalisation of love and equality in marriage came to the fore. This was expressed in poetry, art and in books by authors such as Charlotte Bronte and Thomas Hardy. By the late Victorian period, there was a glut of marriage manuals published that impressed love as being the singular most important factor for a happy marriage. For young girls coming of age, love was a distinct focus, suggested to be the leading activity for a woman's life, whilst for the romantic gentleman it was aspirational in nature and able to transform barbarians into men. In the 19th century age of industry and efficiency, however, the ideal often remained as just that, and was out of reach for many, never anything more than an aspirational daydream. Despite the romance of the floral prose bandied about in your average Victorian love letter, one was expected to keep one's head, receive advice and counsel from family and friends, and make decisions on love and relationships very carefully, and a parent's opinion on the choice of marriage partner was still paramount 
especially since marriage below the age of 21 required parental consent by law. Assessing the rank and character of a potential suitor made up a large part of the choice, and so, even as marriages moved more towards the ideal of companionship, certain considerations were frequently still in place, especially from those families in the higher echelons of society, with heirs or heiresses. Introductions would be made before a young couple could even talk to one another, much less spend any amount of time together. A young man approaching a woman out of the blue would be seen as uncouth, and a young woman doing the same, well, was simply unimaginable. If introductions went well enough, a dance or a cup of tea together, hawkishly watched over by a chaperone, was a potential reward, which could then open the doors to the act of walking out together if both parties were favourable, literally the act of going for a thoroughly awkward walk together where a chaperone would keep both parties at an acceptable distance. If all of this went to plan, the couple could eventually begin the process of keeping company. A fairly intense affair where both parties, in relatively challenging situations, were expected to weed out any undesirable behaviours from one another, such as expensive pleasures, low and vulgar amusements and foppish, eccentric or very slovenly appearances. Often chaperoned, at least until a formal engagement was agreed, meetings between potential marriage partners who were keeping company were tightly controlled social encounters either in public or at private social gatherings, where more often than not, the bride-to-be's parents would be present. Going for walks together around town, afternoon tea with parents, attending a family dinner party with friends, or attending sporting events were the most common dates, and afforded little privacy between couples. Once an engagement had been formally proposed and accepted, couples were given a certain degree of privacy to become more intimately acquainted. However, not at the expense of common Victorian decency. Holding hands on walks, which were no longer chaperoned, was a real highlight, just as long as it all happened whilst the sun was up. With the introduction of the penny post in 1840, letter-writing boomed throughout society and was especially popular among those in blossoming courtships, where writing love letters quickly became very serious business. Penning long, flowery messages back and forth between partners was not only an opportunity to express one's feelings of affection and love without the watchful eye of a chaperone to make things awkward, but also a demonstration of genteel performance. Much like everything else in Victorian life, social etiquette and adhering to a proper form were paramount, clashing with the more romantic ideas of expressing one's secret emotions in painfully flowery prose. A slew of manuals followed, instructing young would-be lovers in the delicate art of writing love letters. Men were encouraged to squeeze out all of their poetic ability in order to woo the women of their dreams, whilst women were expected to keep their heads and write restrained, rational replies. Either way, for both parties, it was an opportunity to express emotions that would be deemed most improper in public. Ultimately, a good standard of English trumped all else, as the letter writer for lovers advised, A love letter never loses by being couched in grammatical terms and with due regard to style and diction. Love like many other things in Victorian culture, was nothing if not a complex contradiction, and it was carried out within a strict rule set, whilst at the same time expected to be experienced as a softly focused daydream. The working classes certainly had things much easier in this regard, and every aspect of dating was more relaxed in comparison to the processes their middle and upper class counterparts had to contend with. However, even the working classes were subject to the same societal pressures. Courting was, all told, a decidedly tense affair. For those young couples who were able to navigate it successfully, 
A long, satisfying marriage was the ideal outcome. But for those that tripped up along the way, and especially for the women, shame, outrage and scandal that could leave a reputation in tatters was heavy on the cards and could lead to genuine life-threatening situations, at times figuratively and at others quite literally. In 1857, a young couple in Glasgow would discover quite how heavy this pressure could be when their romantic pairing, socially incompatible yet so exciting at first, ended in poison, murder and a scandal that excited the entire nation. Pierre-Emile Langelier, more commonly referred to as Emile, was born on the 30th of April 1823 on the Isle of Jersey, the largest of the Channel Islands situated off the northwest coast of France. His parents, Pierre-Jean Langelier and Victoire Mélanie Delacroix, had married a year earlier after a brief courtship. Pierre-Jean was a French-born anti-monarchist who had fled to Jersey with his brother nine years earlier to avoid political persecution, where they had set up a successful plant nursery. Victoire was Jersey-born and was the daughter of a wealthy merchant. Therefore, socially speaking, it had been a good match and Emile grew up in a comfortable but somewhat cramped environment in the house above their shop with his two younger sisters and younger brother. The fledgling family eventually moved into larger premises in a fancier neighbourhood just round the corner from the government offices of La Place Royale. Despite speaking French at home with his family, Emile attended an English school until he was 12 years old before he was apprenticed to a nearby nursery owned by a friend of the family in order to groom him to take over the family business. Plans were thrown by the wayside, however, after Pierre-Jean died in 1840, leaving the business under the care of Emile and Victoire, who now found herself having to support an entire family and run a business on the side. With the help of their daughters to run the shop, the family did manage to muddle through, until 1842, when Emile set Sir Francis Mackenzie, a Scottish landowner and wealthy customer of the Langelier nursery. Mackenzie needed a groundsman to care for his gardens back home in Scotland, and he proposed the idea of taking on Emile to Victoire, who, coping perfectly well without the help of her son, agreed to the suggestion, happy with the extra paycheck that Emile could send home every month. It was the start of a grand journey for Emile, who sailed to Southampton in the south of England before taking a train all the way to the north and settling in Edinburgh, where he continued his botanical education at the Dixon and Company Nursery, giving him the opportunity to get firmly to grips with the extensive collection of exotic plants that he would encounter on the Mackenzie estate. Despite the unexpected death of his father, Emil had managed to secure himself and his family something of a safety net. However, things were once again turned upside down by another death when his new, wealthy employer died of a stroke just a year after his arrival in Scotland. Suddenly, Emil found himself in a shocking position, with no money, no job, and no way to get himself home to Jersey. Luckily, his hard work had paid off when Dixon and company agreed to keep him on, a decision that would at least allow Emil to avoid destitution and eventual homelessness. Emil enjoyed his job and social life in Scotland, but after a relationship with a young woman from Fife failed, he began yearning for home and eventually decided to return. In 1846, he thanked his employers, packed his bags and hopped on a train back south to the docks that had delivered him to England four years earlier. Once home, it did not take long before Emil realised how small the island had become since his leaving. With his eyes open to a wider world, his home life quickly began to feel cramped and suffocating, and before long, his mother had arranged a clerk's position for him in a merchant's firm in Paris. If Emile's life had opened up in Edinburgh before, 
It was nothing to the unfolding opportunities afforded to him in Paris. Engaging in the lively Parisian culture of the mid-19th century, he enjoyed all the quickly modernising city had to offer, including the raucous nightlife. The French Revolution of 1848 kicked off in February of that year, and Emile jumped to volunteer for service in the military, though his service was far less eventful than he had hoped for, and after spending a month as a guard at a railway station, he ended what would be a brief sojourn in the armed forces. In 1851, Tragedy struck once more, and Emile's younger sister, Zephyrine, died. Emile travelled back home to Jersey once again, but just as before, the homecoming was short-lived before the call of the outside world became too much to bear, and Emile set sail north back to Scotland. Older, more cultured, and with a much higher opinion of himself than before, he headed for Edinburgh, where he took on a series of temporary jobs and looked to continue the carefree social life that he'd enjoyed in Paris debating philosophy, discussing art and literature, and chasing women round the town. When he was offered a more stable job, a nursery in Dundee, he jumped at the chance to put down more permanent roots, but after only six months, began feeling the step down was a little too much from the clerk position that he had held in Paris. He hit the road once more, moved to Glasgow, and set out some feelers. Fortunately, his hard-working reputation paid off once more when he happened across an elderly lady in the city who remembered him from his years spent working at Dixon's and Company in Edinburgh and she recommended him for a clerk's position in an import merchant. He joined the local church and continued to network further which worked out very well for him when the vicar put his name forward to a landlord for a more respectable lodgings on the outskirts of the Royal Botanical Gardens that would be far more fitting for a gentleman of the proper society that Emil had worked himself into. It was shortly after he had moved that his constant awareness of his local dating opportunities paid off for him and he happened across Madeline Smith, a 21-year-old young lady from the sort of background that Emil had aspired towards his whole life. In comparison to Emil's life, Madeline Smith's upbringing and home life had been remarkable only in its mundanity. Her father, James, had been a successful, well-known architect who specialised in building large country mansions for wealthy clients. Madeline therefore grew up flitting between her Glasgow home and a rural mansion of her father's design in Rowe, a fashionable location for rich Glasgow merchants on the western coast of Scotland. She attended school and had an education considered suitable for a young woman of her class, which included piano practice, religious prayer, lace-making, etiquette and current affairs. She was considered a good student, but prone to fits of temper and stubborn sulks, which her parents hoped would be squeezed out of her by her brothers and sisters. Perhaps a symptom of an angsty teenage period, she found herself feeling estranged and distant to her family, who dealt with her by employing increasingly strict guidelines. Exactly where Madeline and Emile first crossed paths is not exactly known, though it is likely Emile would have seen her out walking through the streets with her chaperone, and with the Smith family being so well known, the fact that they had a single daughter of age to marry would have been common knowledge throughout the city, at least in well-to-do circles. Wherever it was, Emile was captivated. He immediately set about trying to arrange an introduction, but initially found it difficult, as despite his blossoming social life, he lacked any direct connections with the Smith family. There was his co-worker, whose nephews Charles and Robert Baird were friends of the family, but they were not overly keen to help. Eventually, a spot of good luck came his way when he was out walking with his co-workers and they crossed paths with Madeline and her sister Bessie. 
Emil managed to goad one of his friends into making the introduction, and after brief pleasantries, he managed to pass a note to Bessie that laid out his interest in her sister. With the ball rolling, the pair began taking walks together, chaperone wedged firmly between them, and when Madeline went away to row that summer, they exchanged letters, kicking off what would become something of an exhausting pastime as their relationship evolved. My dear Emil, I do not feel as if I were writing you for the first time. Though our intercourse has been very short, yet we have become as familiar friends. May we long continue so. And dear long, may you be a friend of Papa's. This is my earnest desire. I often wish you were near us. We could take such charming walks. One enjoys walking with a pleasant companion. And where could we find one equal to yourself? I am trying to break myself of all my very bad habits. It is you I have to thank for this, which I do sincerely from my heart. Madeline's restrained letters disguised what was, on her part, an obvious interest in the relationship and in Emil himself, which, presumably, he could not have been more happy about. Though sadly, we are left having to guess from a one-sided conversation, as the vast majority of letters written to Madeline from Emil were destroyed by Madeline in order to keep the communication secret from her parents, who very much did not think Emil was a satisfactory love interest for their precious daughter. Their liaisons had been reported to James Smith, by Bessie, who, for reasons of her own, decided that Madeline's letter-writing had been improper and her parents' reaction had been as strict as she no doubt imagined. Shortly after, Madeline wrote to Emil, calling the whole thing off, and instructed Emil to reply to the letter with confirmation addressed to a fictitious Miss Richard, the fake name that she would use to collect the letter from the local post office. This reasonably unorthodox step is evidence enough that she intended to keep her communication with Emil secret from her parents, and it's fortunate that the system was set up early on, as Emile's reply must have managed to talk Madeline round, and she was soon back to her old self, writing him over-the-top floral letters against her parents' wishes. Part of Emile's plea had included the suggestion that Madeline formally introduce him to her father, though she shot this down fast enough, instead suggesting something far more deviant and more of a storybook romance to boot. Instead, the couple began meeting in secret, late at night and continuing to send quietly scrawled letters addressed to falsely named named recipients. Dear Emil, she wrote, all this must remain a profound secret. Mention my name to no one. This I ask as a favour. I shall depend on your honour. Throughout the summer of 1855, Madeline and Emil continued to meet in secret, most often in the woods by Madeline's rural mansion house, and the pair even began planning their marriage for September of the following year. The big problem was obvious. In public, Madeline was a single woman looking for a husband, and her parents were happy to engage her in social activities where she might meet a future husband. But in private, she was already engaged to Emil. This caused some friction between the clandestine couple, as Emil did his best to pressure Madeline into withdrawing from social activities, even going as far as asking her not to walk down certain streets whilst Madeline continued to deflect any efforts put forward by Emile to be introduced to her parents in order to make their engagement official. Money was not the issue, she assured Emile, and promised that eventually she would do her best to introduce him to her parents. But no sooner had she brought up the topic with them, she was once again writing to Emile to break off their relationship. Her father despised Emile, she said, and her mother hated him, telling her daughter that she would rather see Madeline dead than married to Emile. This was fairly extreme, but at the same time, it confirmed that their consent would never be forthcoming. 
Emile was not at all happy with the outcome and wrote to Madeleine to tell her so. His reply is one of the rare letters that survived in the form of a draft found several years later. Madeleine, in the first place, I did not deserve to be treated as you have done. How you astonish me by writing such a note without condescending to explain the reasons why your father refuses his consent. He must have reasons, and I am not allowed to clear myself of accusations. What am I to think of you now? What is your opinion of your own self after those solemn vows you uttered and wrote of me? Madeline, you have truly acted wrong. May this be a lesson to you. Never trifle with anyone again. Emile accused Madeline of playing fast and loose with her promises to him and of being deceitful to not only him but to her father at the same time for concealing the depth of their relationship. It was harsh at best, but somehow it did manage to have the intended outcome as soon after their communications resumed and Madeline once again wrote of their future together when life would be less complicated. They spent that summer sneaking around behind Madeline's parents' backs and Madeline continued to withdraw from as many social obligations as she could without causing any concern from her suspicious family. When Madeline moved back to Glasgow for the winter, their meetings became slowly more convoluted and more and more complicated plans were drawn up in their letters that could steal them an hour here or there in which they could spend time together. You come to industry at half past ten. Go on the opposite side. I shall open the curtain of the dining room window. If I do so, then come over to the door, and if all is clear, I shall have it open for you to walk in. I hope it will be all right. We shall have an hour at least. Inevitably, Madeline's mother found out about their meetings and came down on Madeline hard, agreeing not to tell her father, but forbidding her to socialise at all for the remainder of the summer of 1856. Madeline suggested to Emile that they cut all contact entirely until their marriage, which they still made loose plans to carry out from time to time, at least until July, when they were forced to realise that the situation made any form of marriage, even eloping to another city, practically impossible. It was a blow to Emile, who had hung his hopes on their September wedding for almost a year, but it was a potentially even more concerning situation for Madeline as one of their recent midnight meetings had wound up with the pair breaking one of the most improper of all Victorian taboos when they engaged in premarital sex. Whilst a figure in the region of two-fifths of all working-class marriages were conducted with a pregnant bride during the late 19th century, those of higher social status could absolutely not be seen to have been engaging in sex before marriage, though the risk was entirely upon the woman, of course, whose reputation could be torn to shreds at the very least. Madeline risked being disowned by her parents and getting thrown out onto the street if anyone was to ever find out, with or without a pregnancy, and things were only beginning to look more complicated as another suitor appeared on the scene that summer, sending the entire affair onto a path of destruction. William Minnick was everything to Madeline's father that Emile was not. A bachelor in his thirties, he was a senior staff member at a Glasgow-based import merchants that James Smith had had business dealings with in the past. Already well acquainted, Madeline's father invited him over to the Smith house to introduce him to Madeline and then continuously all throughout that summer and winter. Hoping to head off any rumours, Madeline told Emile of the man and of how she didn't much care for him at the earliest opportunity. By that September, when the couples had originally planned to marry, they were instead drifting further apart. Madeline's letters began warming in tone towards Minnick, who she now suggested was not the beastly figure that she had once thought he was. That Christmas, Minnick spent the time with the Smith family and things were clearly heading towards a formal proposal, which Madeline would be unable to reject 
even if she had wanted to. But the real question was, by this point, how much did she really want to? Madeline, it seemed, was slowly tiring of the star-crossed lover's role-play that she'd been carrying out with Emil, and reality seemed to be setting in. Although she still continued to write to Emil several times a week in secret, and even managed to have her photographic portrait taken in order to send the photo alongside one of her letters, they were decidedly shorter, less floral, and even, at times, openly critical towards Emil, who she now suggested to go out and spend time with other women more often. She still signed her letters Mimi L'Angelier, however, and she often called herself Emile's wife. When Minnock did eventually propose to Madeleine in January of 1857, and Madeleine accepted, she decided to keep it a secret from Emile, though she did flat out end the relationship in dramatic fashion by writing to him to scold him for what she called his recent coolness. This, she said, was unacceptable and meant that it was clear that the two should part ways. This was an abrupt awakening for Emile, and Madeline perhaps knew as much as she hoped to minimise any fallout by writing, I trust your honour as a gentleman that you will not reveal anything that may have passed between us. I shall feel obliged by your bringing me my letters and likeness on Thursday evening at seven. Madeline was well aware of the damage that Emile could cause if he outed their relationship to her family or to Minnock, and so, it seemed, was Emile, who threatened to write to Madeline's father and send him all of the letters that he had received which she had kept in a large collection. Madeline begged Emile not to do such a thing and promised him that she was not engaged to Minnock nor anyone else, but simply that her love for Emile had faded and that by breaking up with him she was making sure that he could have a happy life in another marriage where both partners could be happy. There was, between the couple, a fragile type of reconciliation but Madeline began making a series of rather strange purchases that hinted at a darker set of emotions beneath the surface. On the 10th of February, she sent the houseboy to purchase a vial of prussic acid, better known as hydrogen cyanide, though the pharmacist refused to sell it to him. Eleven days later, she bought a small amount of arsenic for six pence from a different chemist and signed her name and address in the poison's ledger, writing that it was needed for a garden and country house. Meanwhile, word of Madeline's engagement to William Minnock spread through the town, which Emil could not help but catch wind of. He wrote to her asking if it were true, but she assured him that the rumours were false. My sweet dear pair, I am so sorry that you should be so vexed. Believe nothing, sweet one, till I tell you myself. I love you and you only. The rumours, she told him, were spread by a friend of the family who was very good at making up stories. The same day she replied, she nipped back into the chemist to pick up another dose of arsenic, this time to help kill rats. The pharmacist warned her of how dangerous it could be, but she assured him that all would be fine as she intended to use it before the family went away for 11 days so no one would be around to accidentally ingest any of the lethal powder. She then left for the nearby spa town of Bridge of Allen, where she set the wedding date with Minnock for that June. Curiously, Emil had been somewhat under the weather that month, and also headed to Bridge of Allen in order to rest and recuperate. Their paths crossed almost in transit, but when Emil received a letter from Madeline on the 21st of March, suggesting a nighttime meeting and requesting Emil to come back and clasp me to your heart, he rushed back to Glasgow to see her, much to the surprise of his landlady, Mrs. Anne Jenkins, who was not expecting him back for another week. Emil told her that a letter had brought him back early, but that he was planning to return the following morning, and then he strolled off into the night. 2.30am, the doorbells of the Jenkins home rang out sharply, disrupting the late-night blanket of calm that descended over the household. 
Mrs. Jenkins woke with a start and grumbled as she headed to the door to see who it could be at such a late hour. Pulling the door open to the street, her anger turned to shock as she saw her lodger, Emile Langelier, hunched double in the doorframe, clearly in some pain. She helped him up to his room and asked him if he'd eaten any food likely to have made him sick. Replying that he had not, she left him alone for several hours, but by 5am it was clear that his condition had deteriorated rapidly. Setting out into the Glasgow dawn, she went to the nearby home of Dr James Stephen to get some help, but as luck would have it, the doctor was ill himself. Rather than pay a visit to a meal, he advised Mrs Jenkins to give him a drink of hot water with drops of laudanum and to place a mustard poultice upon his stomach and assured her that he would come by later that morning. By 7am, however, it was clear that Emil was not recovering. Mrs Jenkins was forced to return to the doctor's and this time Dr Stephen followed her back home and up the stairs to Emil's small lodgings. It was, sadly, all too late and Emil lay on the bed, staring up at the ceiling, his life thoroughly departed. Shortly after the doctor declared Emil dead, the small room became host to a busy scuffling as people came and went. Mary Perry, an older lady and a good friend of Emil's who had met through the church, was one of the first to show up, though how she was aware he was back in Glasgow was something of a mystery. She crouched over his body, kissed his forehead and burst into tears, then, after composing herself, ventured over to the Smith's house and told Madeline's mother the news. She had known all about the clandestine relationship, as both Emile and Madeline had divulged a fair amount of detail about it to her, but what business she had with Madeline's mother is another mystery. William Stevenson, Emile's superior at work, was notified of the death, along with the French consul, Monsieur Demine. His room had been relatively bare, a writing desk, a few medicine bottles on the shelves, and little else in the way of personal items. When Demine and Stevenson searched the room, they found several keys, a notebook, and several stacks of letters in his desk drawer, but little else. Searching his pockets, they found Madeline's last letter to him, imploring him to meet her tomorrow night. His work desk in his office at Huggins's Merchants was much the same, and Stevenson found more stacks of letters, the same as they had found in his desk at home. The following day, Demine and James Smith, Madeline's father, showed up at Emile's office and demanded that they hand over the letters, but Stevenson was not easily intimidated, and he turned them away. As soon as they left, he reported the incident to Huggins, who, suspicious of their motives, ordered a post-mortem examination to be carried out, paid for by himself. Dr Stevens, the doctor who had discovered Emil dead alongside Mrs Jenkins, was brought in for the job and he carried out the exam assisted by Dr Thomas. A portion of the stomach was removed and placed in a jar for later analysis, but the two doctors' early conclusions were that Emil's internal organs showed sign of poison. They took their results to the public prosecutor and filled him in on the details of the case. The prosecutor's own suspicion grew equally and he asked about the content of the letters and asked for Stevenson to deliver a sample to him, which he did that day. It had only been two days since Emile's death, but Madeline found herself at the centre of a flurry of suspicion from several angles. The next morning, Demine visited the Smith's residence again and this time he directly questioned Madeline on her recent involvement with Emile. Madeline denied everything, saying that she had not seen him for several weeks, that she hadn't even known that he'd been recently out of the city, and that though she had written the letter asking him to meet him, she had expected the meeting to take place on Saturday night, not Sunday. Emile had not shown up to the meeting, because the letter had been delayed due to having to be forwarded to the Bridge of Alain. Therefore, she had not expected him to come on Sunday night at all. 
The reason she had wanted to contact Emil, she said, was to inform him of her engagement to Minnick. That Thursday, the 26th of March, Emil was buried in the cemetery of Ramshorn's Church, Glasgow. The same evening, Minnick paid a visit to the Smiths to see Madeline, but when he turned up at the house, he found the family in something of a panic. Madeline had not been seen since the night before, and no one knew where she had gone. Suspecting that she may have run off to the family mansion in Rowe, Minnick took her brother and went off to see if they could catch up with her, which they managed to do by an extraordinary stroke of luck when they both caught the same boat out of Glasgow. The trio continued their journey to Rowe, where upon their arrival, Minnick questioned Madeline on her behaviour. Clearly upset by something, she told him only that she was concerned that something that she had done may upset her mother and father, but then she turned silent, choosing to say no more. The trio slowly made their way back to Glasgow, at the same time as Dr Stevens was sending off the remains of Emil's stomach to the Andersonian University, where the Professor of Chemistry, Dr Frederick Penny, had agreed to examine it for traces of poison. The weekend fell relatively quiet as the turn of seasons drew nearer. But as the noonday sun sat above Glasgow on the 31st of March, the Smith household was in a considerable fluster as Madeline found herself arrested on two counts of attempted murder and a single count of murder. The public prosecutor had seen enough with the doctor's reports and sample of letters to suspect that Madeline had something to do with Emil's death and she was taken to Glasgow jail where she was given the chance to sign her statement of defence. In the statement, she stuck to her story for the most part that she had not seen Emil for weeks, that she had not known he had been away for his health and that she had bought arsenic but had been using it on her skin as a cosmetic, a technique that she said she had picked up while she'd been at school. In general, she was quite honest about her and Emil's relationship, though she missed out the part about them having sex, and she concluded with the firm statement, I never administered, or caused to be administered to Mr. Langelier, arsenic or anything injurious, and this I declare to be truth. Whilst Madeline sat in prison, perfectly relaxed by all reports, Emil's body was exhumed less than a week after its burial. This time it was closely examined for signs of poison, and the four doctors that poured over the remains found just that, with obvious damage to the intestines, rectum, liver and brain. By the 3rd of April, the national press had picked up on the story, though details had been rather vague, but the next day, Saturday the 4th, full stories started to leak out across the nation. The thought that a highly and virtuously bred young lady could destroy her lover is too appalling for belief but the public voice supplies a reason in the circumstance that a gentleman in a much more promising and prominent position in life than that occupied by Langelier had become a suitor for the young lady's hand, and that he had been accepted by her and her parents. This we set down as the rumour of the day. Meanwhile, while the young lady is in the hands of justice, there is nothing in her proceedings, so far as is known, incompatible with innocence. The piece was not shy with the details of the case, and it used full names to link the arrest with the Smith family. James Smith acted swiftly, employing a team of solicitors to not only represent his daughter, but to work to shield the family from the incoming scandal. They must have had some success, because the story was kept relatively quiet in the papers for some time, quite opposite the noise on the public voice, as gossip flew around the streets and pubs of Glasgow like wildfire. On the 29th of August, it was reported that Madeline was to stand trial the very next day in Edinburgh, where she had been transferred six days earlier in the hopes of gaining a more neutral jury. 
the next morning, Madeline was brought into the courtroom where she was given the opportunity to plead guilty or not guilty to the accusations that she stood on trial for. At the time, a defendant in Scotland had no right to speak in court on their own behalf, nor were they allowed to be called to the stand, so Madeline's quiet reply of not guilty would be the only words she spoke throughout the entire trial. Sitting down in her brown silk dress and straw bonnet to watch the events unfold before her, she maintained a calm, confident demeanour, much commented on by an impressed crew of journalists who documented the case day by day for the excited public who were falling over themselves awaiting details of the latest scandal. Over the following nine days, nearly 120 witnesses were called to give evidence for either side and over 300 letters were read aloud to the courtroom, the vast majority in a single, very long day. From 7am each morning, people stuffed themselves into the square outside the courtroom hoping to secure a seat for the day, including a dozen ladies who had brought along their stitching to pass the time. At 10.30am, her indictment was read out to the court, and then the case for the prosecution was underway. Or at least, it would have been had the court not been kept waiting for a further two hours by Dr Penny, who was heavily scolded by the judge for showing up late. Finally, the 15 members of the jury were sworn in, and the trial began in earnest. The prosecution began by calling Mrs Jenkins, Emil's landlady, who explained to the court that three periods of illness that he had suffered before his eventual death, as well as furnishing the room with a shining review of his character, something which became a standout feature of all the witnesses who called him a well-conducted young man. Mr and Mrs Towers gave evidence that during his recent trip to Edinburgh, Emil had told them over a dinner that he had suspected his illness to have been a poisoning, but when asked who might have done such a thing, he kept quiet and had no answer. At the time, the Towers had suspected it was just a meal being dramatic, but now it obviously had a different meaning. The last person to see a meal before he had been unwell, Mary Tweedle, gave evidence that she had opened the door to him at 9.20pm on the Sunday night of his death. Mary was the servant girl of Emil's friends, a Mr McAllister, who Emil had stopped in to see, but was not at home at the time. Mary had informed Emil of the fact and closed the door, leaving a long, blind five hours before Emil was seen again, staggering into his house at 2.30am. A diary of sorts was shown to the court that Emil had begun keeping in his notebook from the 11th of February. Each entry detailed his engagements with either a person named only M or Mimi, both of which were, of course, Madeline. In his entries, he noted two occasions where he had spent time with Madeline before falling ill later that day. The defence launched their own case on July the 3rd, the fourth day of the trial, and focused fairly heavily on calling witnesses who could paint Emil as a bit of a ladies' man, a player who had toyed with the affections of several women at the same time. The fact that he had stolen Madeline's innocence from her was driven strongly to the room, as was his propensity to have large emotional swings, especially when it came to women. Several times in the past, he was said to have threatened to take his own life after relationships had gone south. Once, he threatened to throw himself out of a window, and once from the end of a pier. They also noted to the court that Emil had been known in the past to use small amounts of arsenic as a stimulant. In summing up, the defence noted that there were discrepancies in the dates of Emil's earlier illnesses, so much so that the witnesses often forgot exactly when they had noticed Emil at all, and they impressed fairly heavily that Madeline did not even have a reason to kill Emil, as his death would only have led to their letters becoming found and their relationship eventually exposed. It was a strong case, despite the medical evidence suggesting that Madeline's excuse to use arsenic as a cosmetic 
would have been dangerous and that her school friends could not remember having told her such a thing as she had said in her original statement. The jury left the courtroom at 1.10pm on July the 9th, the ninth day of the trial, and returned 22 minutes later to deliver their verdict. On the first charge of attempted murder, Madeline was found not guilty, and on the second and third counts of attempted murder and murder, the jury had voted on a verdict of not proven. The court erupted in cheers, and Madeline left a free woman. The press were quick to comment on the outcome, with some choosing to focus on how Madeline had walked through the court on each day of the trial like a bell entering a ballroom, or with a cool jaunty air and a smirk that lacked all the elements of a genuine smile. While some found this to be an example of her callous, heartless ways, others praised her, suggesting it was the calmness only afforded to those that were innocent. One story wrote of a man who claimed to have seen Emil and Madeline behind the Smith house at 1am on the night of his death, but had been too late in giving his statement to have been included in the trial, this being only one example of a whole pile of stories that came out after the case that were still surrounded by speculation and continued in the papers for weeks. There were, broadly speaking, four different theories that bore any resemblance to the known facts that roared through the streets in the days following the trial's conclusion. Unfortunately, there are problems with every single one of them. One theory suggested that Emil had accidentally killed himself by ingesting the arsenic when he had meant to take medicine for his stomach ailments instead. There were several medicine bottles found in his room, but no trace of arsenic, nor any container for arsenic was found in his possession. Furthermore, no poison books in Glasgow or the surrounding area showed him purchasing any arsenic, at least not in his own name. Lastly, Mrs Jenkins, who had seen him shortly before he had gone out that night before he had died, had thought that his health had appeared much better, and he told her as much, saying that he'd been feeling significantly better since his trip to Bridge of Alain. If he really was looking and feeling so much better, then what reason would he have for her taking medicine in the first place? Another theory is that Emil took his own life, possibly with the hopes of framing Madeline in the process. His short diary that he'd only begun keeping in the month before his death, with many entries purposefully pointing out his communications and engagements with Madeline, is suggested as the main source of evidence, especially as he had not been known to have kept a diary in the past. Some of the dates are suspicious too, and it appears that there is no mention of any meetings in Madeline's letters on several of the dates that Emil marks as their pair having met. Of course, the biggest problem with this theory is that if Emil wanted to enact revenge upon Madeline, he did not need to go nearly so far as to take his own life. Sending Madeline's letters to her father would almost certainly have done the job, and if not, he could have published them even more widely, an act that would have thoroughly trashed her reputation throughout the city. So what if the death was in fact a murder, but not carried out by Madeline? This theory suggests that someone else may have killed Emil and implicated Madeline either purposefully or by accident. No witnesses were ever found that could testify to anyone else having any significant dislike for Emil, however, and if it was a murder of passion or rage, then it's highly doubtful that arsenic would have been the weapon of choice. The only two other people that could potentially have had a motive were Minnick, who did not actually know that Emil existed until after his death, or Madeline's father, though it seems highly unlikely that he would have wanted to implicate his daughter in the ordeal, so it does seem equally unlikely. The last theory is perhaps the most obvious. What if it was Madeline that killed Emil and that she had gotten away with murder? There was a whole stack of circumstantial evidence that piled up against her, but if she had killed Emil, 
Had she really been so naive that she had not once tried to cover up or conceal any of the incriminating evidence that stood against her, such as the stacks of letters that she knew Emil had, or the fact that she signed her own name when purchasing arsenic, and on two occasions she even visited pharmacies with a friend, serving up a perfect eyewitness to the prosecution. On Emil's part, if he really had been suspicious that Madeline was poisoning him, as he had suggested to his friends the towers over dinner, then why would he have accepted any food or drink from Madeline at all? After the trial, Madeline returned home to Glasgow, but her family quickly found the unwanted detention impossible to escape and soon moved out of the city. Rumours circulated that Madeline had skipped the country, heading to Canada or Australia under a new name, but the truth was much less adventurous. In reality, she had moved to London to live with her brother and four years later married a draftsman named George Wardle who she had two children with. Mary and Thomas, though the couple split when George grew tired of marriage and took off to Italy in 1889. After George's death in 1910, Madeline did actually decide to take up a new life. She changed her name to Lena and hopped on a boat bound for New York, where she settled down and married again, becoming Lena Wardle Sheehy. She lived in New York in relative anonymity until her death in 1928, and she was finally buried in Mount Hope Cemetery in Hastings-on-Hudson in New York County, in New York. Over 160 years have passed since the conclusion of the case, and in that time, scores of transcripts, fictionalised accounts and biographies have been published that all come complete with their own theory as to how Emile Langelier was killed. One rumour circulated that when friends of the judge who oversaw the trial was asked by friends if he really thought Madeline to be innocent, he replied that he would sooner have danced with her than taken a drink with her. In the end, though, we are left only with the scores of theories and witness transcripts with which to pore over for hours upon hours if we hope to find our own answer, proving true the phrase printed by one paper shortly after the case that concluded that the answer would long remain the theme for ingenious conjecture. So that was the story of Emile Angelier and Madeleine Smith, and we will... I do some conjecture. I don't know if it will be ingenious, but we'll get on with some conjecture after these short advert breaks. Forbidden history, grisly ghosts, monstrous cryptids, and harrowing folklore dominate Japan's history and culture. Mysterious Japan is a bi-weekly podcast presenting these spine-chilling horror stories, urban legends, and unbelievable histories in a campfire story format. Many of these tales have never been presented in English before. Our journey takes place where dark history and supernatural folklore collide. Mysterious Japan is produced, written, and translated by recognized Japan expert Dr. Heath Having. Season 1 relates the unbelievable legends and ghost stories from the so-called suicide forest. Listen to Mysterious Japan for free on Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Learn more at our website at themysteriousjapan.com and be transported by unbelievable stories where the lines between reality and folklore become blurred in the shadowlands of Japan. Once again, that's themysteriousjapan.com. Welcome back. So yes, that was the um, that was the story of Emil and, and uh, Madeline. Kind of an interesting one. How much of it's a mystery, I don't know. Although I think when you do start reading the transcripts and stuff, you do kind of start feeling like it's a little more of a mystery than it first appears. When I first heard of this case, I, I, I almost was sure it was pretty much nailed on that, that, that it was Madeline and that she'd poisoned him to shut him up, right? 
but the more you read into the transcripts and stuff, the yeah, like I say, the, the less that seems like it could possibly have been the case. Some of the transcripts are hilarious. Just to get this out of the way before we start, because it's just so funny. Um, so, like, obviously, this was like mid nineteenth century, and the, the 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 legal language in the courts was very funny, right? But one of the day's transcripts was in a newspaper that I found. And um, it, 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 bear in mind, this newspaper, right, I think it had about six columns on the case. So it was quite a big piece. But still, it, it, you know, six columns, space was relatively tight, right? But they, they gave a word-for-word transcript of Madeline's indictment. And it was just so unbelievably wordy, right? So I've got it, some of it here, right? And it started, yet true it is, and a verity, that you, that said Madeline Smith or Madeline Hamilton Smith, are guilty of the said crimes, or one or other of them, actor or are, and part, in so far as one, on the 19th or 20th of February 1857, or on one of the other days of the month, or of January immediately preceding, or of March immediately following, within or near the house situated in or near Blythewood Square, in or near Glasgow, or situated in or near Square, and in or near Main Street, both in or near Glasgow, then occupied by James Smith, architect, your father, then residing there, and with whom you then, and there resided you that said... this. I think I've just read out a third of the first point, and there's three points, and it continues like that. And, and of course it has to because it's 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 legalese, right? It's 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 making sure that you know it's it's very particular, it, it, of course, and it has to be. But it just made me laugh that the newspaper chose. I don't know why I just read that out. It just made me laugh at the time that the newspaper chose to sort of take up precious sort of uh, column inches with this gigantic <laughs> indictment. Uh, but yeah, getting onto the actual story um, rather than nonsense. Um, what do we think of the the theories? So we sort of work, like work through them. The first theory that I mentioned is that he accidentally killed himself by taking medicine. This is a strange one because I don't think it's true for starters. I'll start with that. And the reason I don't think it's true is because he was feeling a lot better. And the, the, basically the, the, there were two people that saw him that day that said that he was looking a lot better than he had. Um, I think it was Mary Tweedle, the servant girl, and um, his Miss Anne Jenkins, the the um, landlady. And both of them said that he he was feeling a lot better. And actually, he actually had a, a um, like an in, entire conversation with Miss Anne Jenkins about it. And she said to him, like, oh, you know, you're, I didn't expect you back from the Bridge of Allen so soon. And he, he sort of said, well, I'm going back the next morning. So could you please wake me up, uh, you know, uh, so I can catch the first train? And then she said to him, oh, you're looking a lot better. And he was, he sort of replied to her, like, yeah, I, I'm feeling a lot better too. Um, you know, I'm paraphrasing, but but basically that's the conversation they had, right? So, so if you got that, I'm not sure why he would have wanted to take medicines at all. But the next part it, it is quite strange is... During the court case, they made quite a big fuss of the fact that Emil didn't really like taking medicines. He he was known to not like taking medicines. But what I don't understand is why when they cleaned his room out, were well, one of the only things in the room, a bunch of medicine bottles. I mean, what were they doing there if he didn't really like taking medicines? I didn't... Those two, for me, seemed like a bit of a contradiction. It doesn't really mean anything. It was just a strange contradiction. I, I don't necessarily think... I don't really think it means anything. It's probably just a mix-up that's sort of gradually become ingrained. 
but it, it was a strange contradiction to me but anyway um the the medicine bottles in his room were tested for traces of arsenic and there wasn't any and you know he didn't seem to have any um little like paper packets that would have had arsenic in them if he'd have bought some uh i mean obviously you don't need those things he could have done it and disposed of those um and but yeah he was not um there was no no witnesses from any of the pharmacists recognized him or signed he and his name wasn't signed in any poison books so he basically couldn't have purchased any so you know i don't think this is really true i think this is a bit of a stretch i think there's just too much against it the fact that he um you know i think the poison book to be honest rules it out um almost entirely because it, it you know although you could buy this stuff like you could buy arsenic and prussic acid and stuff it was relatively tightly controlled um in the, it, and, and of course you could dupe uh, um a uh, a pharmacist uh but it wasn't the easiest thing to do and and so i i don't i don't think that's that's the case the, the evidence for it is is quite interesting and and this sort of leads into the, the the fact that he might have taken his own life and hoped to frame madeline in the process and it's essentially that he he went to visit these these friends at towers and he had dinner with them and he told them oh you know i think i'm being poisoned which is weird but he did also say that if it was madeline then he he wouldn't he, he would forgive her which makes me think that he he thought that Madeline was poisoning him, but he didn't want to land her in any trouble because they sort of said to him, like, who, who by? And he just kept quiet. I think he had suspicion that it was Madeline, but he just kept quiet about it. I mean, firstly, it seemed, that seems like an odd conversation to have over dinner to firstly start, sort of someone says to you, oh, you know, are you, are you feeling better or whatever? You wouldn't sort of, I don't think you'd, really sort of say yeah oh yeah i'm feeling much better but by the way i think i'm being poisoned it's a bit of a debbie downer conversation isn't it i mean it might be something that you might speak with with your closest friends but over a sort of you know a, a dinner you know probably quite a formal dinner there's a certain degree of etiquette i don't think he would have brought that up it seems weird that for him to have brought that up so so then you can start questioning like perhaps this maybe was the case and the other um obviously the other the sort of major evidence is that he had this notebook and in the notebook he kept a diary but only for like a month and he, he hadn't and 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 in the in the court it was quite interesting the defense for madeline had uh, just found it completely absurd that he'd kept this diary but not from january because you know uh, a gentleman keeps a diary you know, from, from the start of the year, from the very beginning of the year, not midway through, uh, which I, th- I thought was quite funny. Um, but it is nevertheless quite strange that he did only start taking it just from February. You know, strange that it's only a month old and that it all seemed to be scribbled in pencil and that, that it, th- there was some speculation that it, it wasn't written on the individual days. It was all written at the same time. So he might have gone back and done like an entire week's worth all at once sort of thing which then leads you to believe was he making stuff up uh and there are also dates that he wrote down where he said oh i met up with mimi uh and then i got home and felt ill the next day and she'd written him a letter that that doesn't mention their meetings and in all of her letters she always mentions their meetings she always says you know oh it was lovely to see you last night or it's basically things to do with it sometimes she, oh, i'm sorry for being cold or or she basically always talks about their meetings so it seems 
weird that she wouldn't have mentioned them if they really did meet up, which means that he may have made those up, which then seems like the framing her sort of comes into play a little bit more. On the other hand, you could suggest that if she was poisoning him, she wouldn't have wanted to bring them up in the letters, and maybe he was keeping the diary because he had suspicions that he she was poisoning him, and he wanted to keep track of it for himself. Like, oh, I met up with Mimi, she gave me some cocoa, and then I was ill. Then it looks suspicious, right? And he can start sort of seeing a pattern develop, and it's all written down in his diary. So maybe that was why he was writing his diary. Maybe he had his own suspicions and he just wanted to keep track of it. But still, the diary the diary is quite strange evidence. Um, I, I personally don't think he did take his own life just simply because he just didn't need to. Um, I, I think if you really want, if you wanted to get revenge and trash her relationship with Minnick and trash her reputation, he he could have just published the letters. Um, yeah, he he could have just given them to her dad, given them to Minnick giving them to her friends, whatever. He had like he had enough evidence there to like, you know, if he wanted to be spiteful, he could he could easily have done that. Um so I just don't think he needed to go to that extreme. You know, unless he wanted her completely destroyed. And then I guess maybe, but that seems a bit dramatic. But but then there so so then here's the other thing. He does seem like he was quite dramatic at times. Um you know like like um sort of telling his friends how he was going to like throw himself out of the window and throw himself off a pier. I don't for one second believe that they were genuine threats and I don't, and I don't think that any of his friends were genuinely concerned for his safety. Uh, you know, I, I think he, I think he was just dramatic. I think he was saying it for dramatic effect. He seemed like, you know, there was no sort of real willpower behind it. So I just don't really think it stacks up, but it, it does sort of play into it. The fact that he was relatively, um, you know, uh, over dramatic at times, but I just don't think he had any reason to take his own life at all. Um, so I, I don't, I don't really, I don't, I, I, I don't think I can believe that theory really. But the, the the first thing that sprung to my mind was this third theory actually, and and you know, as I was reading through it, my immediate reaction was like that, that perhaps it was a murder. But it wasn't carried out by Madeline. And my immediate thought was that it was her father. But that doesn't really stack up. I think that he has, outside of Madeline, I think he's the only other person with a true motive. Because Minnick apparently didn't know about Emil. Apparently he didn't even know he existed. How much that's true, I don't know. Because there would have been rumours. And if he'd have talked to his friends for example and said oh you know i'm i'm walking out with uh madeline smith or whatever it wouldn't maybe one or two of them might turn around and said like really you know i thought she was kind of you know seeing this other guy so he possibly would have found out about it but but he never really probed to try and find out about that her relationship with emil so i i don't think it would have been minnick um and I think, like I say, her father was really the only one to one with a motive. But the problem with that is, like, like, why would he have wanted to bury his daughter so heavily? Like, like maybe he'd have wanted a meal gone. But even that, I think, is a little extreme. Because I don't think, again, I don't think, and I'll come back to this in a second, but I don't think it would have warranted killing him. 
I don't think he would have done it because I don't think I think he would have known that the collateral damage would have taken out his daughter along with the meal at the same time. So I don't think it was I don't think it was him. And the reason I say he didn't really need to kill Emil was because I mean simply Emil didn't really have a lot of choice in this. If they said no, and you know the parents didn't agree to the marriage he w- i think he would have felt that he had sufficient control over his daughter for emil to just go away and have no choice in the matter being the strict sort of patriarchal father from the mid 19th century that that it sounds like he was i i think he would have if he even if he didn't have control over madeline um i think he would have felt that he did i, I think he would have been too egotistical to um assume that she would elope if you know what I mean. I, I personally don't think she would have anyway. I personally think that her relationship with Emil was essentially a bit of a LARP, you know, like a bit of a um, pulp common people, you know. She just wanted to like rough it for a bit. And uh, at the end of the day, she sort of knew that she was always going to kind of end up with someone of a higher class. And I don't, I don't doubt that she had feelings for Emil um, because I don't think you would have got yourself into such trouble if you didn't. You know, so I think she definitely had feelings for Emil, but I think ultimately, um, you know, uh, the the reality, she knew that uh, the unfortunate reality of her situation, I think, which was that, you know, her her parents would never have let her marry Emil and that she was from a family that was very strict and that eloping would have been too costly for her and and it it would have meant giving up too much. It would have meant giving up, you know, like a comfortable life and... The you know her family, which I'm sure she she loved as well. So, um, although you know, um, you know, she did say that she was distant and and awkward to them. So, you know, I, I think I think she was probably carrying out something of a fantasy um, with a meal. But I, I generally think there was probably feelings there. But I think she was carrying out a bit of a fantasy. Um, and so, really, we've only got one more theory left, and that's. Or, you know, one more of the kind of like mainstream theories, because there are a lot of other theories as well, but the the sort of mainstream theories that sort of at least focus on the facts of the story. Um, And that's that it was Madeline that killed Emil and she got away with it. Um, I think I believe this. I think this is the one I I steer. There's a lot of, you know, the circumstantial evidence sort of stacks up against her quite heavily. And, And I think ultimately... Things like her buying the arsenic and not disposing of all the letters first before killing him. You know, all those things. I do think it's the fact that she was just naive. I think I think she didn't really understand the consequences of her actions, if you like. I think she was perhaps... And, and, and it's not necessarily her fault, but I think growing up in that sort of environment that she was uh, where you know she had very strict overbearing parents that would have uh, probably coddled her slightly and and taken away quite a bit of responsibility from her uh i think you know she she maybe just was naive to 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 the real world to a certain degree if you know what i mean um i i i wonder if that that's that's the case um having read her letters or you know having read a lot of her letters i do think that she was that she, she may have killed him to get him out of the way because I think she felt cornered and in a position where that was her only real answer was that she had to get rid of him. And I do think that she would have thought that she could get away with it. 
um, because when you read her letters, where where she lies other times in her letters, you can see the the confidence in her writing that she thinks she's getting away with the lies. Like so, Emil asks her, or, or so we have to sort of assume what Emil asked her from her replies because we've only got one side of the conversation, right? But but a few few times she replies to Emil about her relationship with Minnick. So obviously in the letter that he's written to her that obviously we don't have, he's asked her um, what her relationship with Minnick is. And she sort of like lies, like straight out lies to him about it and says, oh, you know, I've I, I've never, you know, I don't, I don't like him. We're not engaged and things like that. And she quite boldly says things like that, like oh, we're not engaged. But despite the fact that she surely must have known that he he would find that out, you know, like rumours would get around and word would get out that they were engaged to be married and she wouldn't have been able to get away with those lies. But she tells them in the letters so boldly, you can tell that she believes that she will get away with it. And and I think, although that's very different to obviously killing someone, you know, writing a letter and lying a little bit, I think it just goes to show that her mindset of how she believes that she will get away with things if she just does it with confidence, if you know what I mean. If she just if she just says it, people will believe her. And this is why I feel sort of sorry for her, actually. I think she, like I say, just felt cornered because she'd slept with him and she knew that those letters were going to tell people that and they were going to just destroy her, um, you know, destroy her socially and, and possibly, you know, physically as well you know and 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 emotionally and everything you know if her she might have been like completely disowned by her parents if they were that strict um but but i mean she would have been seen as like you know and this is a horrible phrase but you know sort of damaged goods if you know what i mean back then you know like she would have felt my life's over if i don't get rid of him and i and i just think that's a heavy amount of pressure and i think it all comes to roost when she runs away, um, but is quite despondent about it. So instead of trying to get away in like a quick way, she just gets on like a boat out of Glasgow and doesn't really seem to know what she's doing. And I think that goes to show again with her naivety. I, I don't think she even knew how to run away, if you know what I mean. Like she just was like, oh, there's a boat. I'll get on that then as if that was going to really work. And I don't think she even really wanted to run away. I think she just was lost. I think she was cornered desperate and lost and I think that's probably why she did it where I don't feel sorry is how the fact she did it so callously and was so cold about it but I can at least see why she did it and you know that's kind of the sad thing because basically she was essentially pushed into it through sort of society right societal pressures and you know family pressures uh sort of pushed her into that corner i mean they didn't you know she could always have just taken the hit you know she could have told her parents and her parents you know she could have gambled that her parents might have sort of covered it up for her um which you know actually in truth seemed like that's what they were intending to do because demean spoke to her dad and he sort of went to see Stevens, uh, Stevenson, who had all the letters, and he basically said, like, lock them up and don't let anyone read them, and I'll collect them and, and dis- until we can dispose of them. So he did seem to be wanting to sort of cover it up without anyone being able to find out the truth. 
So potentially he wouldn't have thrown her out, but she just wouldn't have known that, I just don't think. And, and I think she just felt cornered and I think that's probably why she did it. Anyway, enough sort of like trying to figure out sort of complicated psychology of someone who feels like they're cornered. But I think that's probably, I think that's probably my answer. And I think that's, that's probably the theory that I agree with. Um, it's interesting. Um, you know, it isn't so cut and dry. I mean, I say all that and it, and I sort of talk myself into believing it, but then I look at some of the sort of negatives to that as well. Like, you know, why would Emil have accepted food if he, if he genuinely thought that she was poisoning him? Suddenly you start wondering again, you know, that it's not so cut and dried. Uh, you know, would she really have been that naive to have signed her name on the poison books? Did she really think just saying it was of a cosmetic use would have been enough? I don't know. That seems, because I mean, I just said all that, but I mean, that does seem naive in the extreme, doesn't it? So, yeah, I guess that's the question. The big mystery really is where did Emil go those five hours? Because that's interesting. And I hadn't spoken about this and I was going to wrap it up, but I do have to point out that five hours, he left his friend's house at 20 past nine and he got home at half past two in the morning. That's a long time. In none of their meetings between him and Madeline were ever five hours long. They were all short, like one hours, 45 minutes, 30 minutes. They were all short. There was also a policeman who marched the beat and would have seen him. And he had seen him on, on several occasions, basically hanging outside their house, right? So he knew who Emil was and, um, and, uh, and he didn't see him that night of his death. So he certainly wasn't hanging around there for five hours. Five hours is a long time. None of, like I say, none of their meetings were ever that long. So where was he? And that's the real mystery, right? And obviously that would unlock the, well, that would, that would be the answer, wouldn't it? Is if we could find out where he was for those five hours, the mystery would be solved. And I guess that's the challenge for uh, anyone interested in uh, revisiting and trying to dig up this case anymore. But good luck with that. So yeah, if you have any of your own theories, get in touch. Uh, contact at darkhistories.com is the email. You can also get in touch with me on social media, um, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, all that. All the links are in the uh, show notes. And you can also get in touch with me and, uh, you know, uh, via Discord, uh, which, you know, Dark Issues has a little Discord community. If you want to come on and have a chat, darkhistories.com is the website. Link in the show notes. You'll be able to find everything there to do with the show, things like uh, all the ways that you can support the show, uh, including Patreon, Amazon book wishlist, merchandise, the Dark Histories books, all of that good stuff, all on the website. Um, otherwise, yeah, feel free to get your Christmas campfire stories in, like I mentioned. Until next episode, sleep tight. Sleep tight.